welcome back to another episode of Time Out with the Sports Doctor podcast. I'm glad to have you back with us for another week and, you know, another great discussion. So today I have another physician with me. I have Dr. Gregory uh, Charlotte, who is a pediatric anesthesiologist by training, but he is far more than just a physician. He's also an author. He's a speaker. Um, he is a founder of From Soccer to the C-Suites, um, and he is a girls uh, sports advocate. So very glad to have you on the podcast to share your wealth of knowledge with us. Are you interested in real estate? Are you tired of hearing about all the money that your friends and colleagues are making from their investments, but you don't know where to start? Don't worry, I got you. We are teaming up with Dr. Ronnie Shalev and Shawin Properties to equip you with the tools you need to feel empowered about your investments. So how do you get involved? Do these three things. First, go to my website at drderickthesportsdoctor.com and click on a sponsor link for Shawin Properties. This will give you access to a free webinar as well as the ability to have a discovery call with Dr. Ronnie Shalev. Also follow her on social media and stay tuned for more helpful tips coming at you on Money Mondays. Now back to the episode. Thanks, it's great to be here. All right, I didn't murder your name, did I? Your last name? <laughs> no, it wasn't too bad. Charlotte. Right. Pro who knows how pronounce to pronounce it for me anywhere? Charlotte. Charlotte. Okay. All right. Yeah. Got you. All right. Not perfect. too bad. Not too bad. Yeah. All right. So tell us, you know, a physician, now we're starting to see more physicians do things outside of just, you know, wake up every morning, go for you, put patients to sleep, wake them up and go home. You know, you have a lot of interest outside of the hospital. So kind of tell us where that branched from and where did that start? Well, you know, the truth is, I guess I'd always sort of been interested in doing other things. I remember when I was in college, I was thinking about doing an, like a combined MD MBA program, which, you know, this is like forever ago now. And right. so it wasn't that common at that time. Right. And I thought this would be kind of cool, but I ended up, you know, opting not to do that. But yeah, I'd always been interested in other things. You know, I, I, I like, this is actually one of my favorite subjects to talk about is career and where do you see your life going? I, I love thinking about this. And, you know, I mean, I don't know how long I'll live, but if you assume the average person lives to say 80 or 90, I mean, younger people listening to your show, maybe they'll live to 100. Right. If you start working at 20 and you retire, if you live to 100, you'll probably work to what, 80 or something like that? You're working like 60 years. How could a 20 year old know what you want to do for the next 60 years? Like there's just yeah. no way. Yeah. And, and, and so I think the problem is a lot of doctors, because there's such a long launching pad to get into it, you, know, you have to mm -hmm. work hard in college and you have to work hard in medical school, you have to work hard in residency, and then you have a fellowship and then you have to do all these things to get into the job. But, the, the runway is so long. There's this tremendous pressure to do what you've trained to do. Like you've just yeah. spent so much time and so much effort and you've given up so much. How can you not do what you've trained to do? And so there's tremendous sort of internal pressure and there's pressure even from your parents, well-meaning people, and there's certainly pressure from your colleagues. But I think eventually like you, you have to answer to yourself and figure out like what, is interesting to you and how do you want to spend your time and at some point you can't just go by kind of what your colleagues expect of you 
Yeah, you brought up an interesting point because, you know, to be a physician, unless you're going to go the non-traditional route, you have to choose probably 18, 20 at the old, at the um, latest. And who is making that decision? You know, are you doing it because daddy's a physician, mama's a physician, or they want their baby to be a physician? Why did you truly choose to go down this path? And as you mentioned, once you get so far down the path, you can turn around, but it's a long way back if you do decide to turn around. So many people just continue down the path because I've invested time, money. You know, if I stop right now, how am I going to pay this thousand dollar loan, you know, when I'm scrapping to find a job? So, yeah, it's a, it's a long path to medicine. And once you get started, many times people just feel the pressure to continue down the path. Right. And, and, and I know you have a lot of athletes watching this, and I think to some degree you have a similar situation there. You know, say you've got someone like a football player, for example. Yeah. You know, they, they decided probably that they wanted to play football at like eight, nine, ten, you know, somewhere in that range. And pretty much ever since then, they've probably been playing football or some sport throughout school. They've probably had to sacrifice a lot for training and to go to games. Mm -hmm. They didn't have family time. They couldn't do other things that maybe they would have wanted to have done. They put a lot of effort. They risked injury. Maybe they were injured. You know, obviously, you know all about that. And, yeah. and so they went through all these things. And then maybe they went to college and they played football. And perhaps they were fortunate enough to maybe even make it into the NFL for a year or two. Most people don't really get past that. Mm -hmm. And now things don't work out. and Or they've decided they don't want to do it anymore. Or maybe they were injured or something. And... It, it, it's very traumatic. It's, it's the same thing. You've got this long runway and now you, you kind of throw your hands up and you're like, what do I do now? Yeah. And, you know, that can lead to depression or, you know, it can lead to a lot of guilt and shame and a lot of different emotions going with that as well. So, um, yeah, that's a very important topic. So let's talk about from soccer um, to the C-suite and what that program or what's that idea behind that program? So I've got two daughters. You and I both have them yeah. and you know I ever would so they used to play sports before COVID they did gymnastics and then the COVID came and I was thinking well you know maybe you know rolling around at an indoor gym with a bunch of other sweaty kids isn't the best thing to do you <laughs> yeah, know when there's yeah. some crazy virus running around so we stopped and you kind of got used to not doing that and we you know just did our usual stuff but we weren't yeah. doing the sports and then finally kind of COVID started lifting and we're like well you know how big of a deal is it for them to do sports now they're still kind of young and then we stumbled on this study from EY Ernst and Young and they found that over 90 percent of C-suite women senior executive successful businesswomen they played sports when they were young and so, I mean, it's really pretty breathtaking. Like how, I mean, obviously it's a correlation, so we don't know yeah. what caused what, but, but that's mm -hmm. a pretty darn strong correlation. So, you know, I, it got me thinking, well, we're doing all these other things to try to help our daughters succeed. You know, like we just finished doing a French class and, you know, we all are doing different things that, you know, kids across the street are playing chess and everything. But it may be that one of the single best things you could do is just to get them to play sports. And so I started looking into this and I interviewed a lot of very successful business women and almost all of them played sports and they all felt that sports was very important to them and helped get them to where they were. And it, it taught them valuable lessons that made a difference. 
and I think help them succeed in the business world. And so from soccer to C-suite, really the idea was let's get people together, whether they're athletes or doctors or philanthropists or investors and come up with innovative ways that we can help girls either play sports or do other leadership things that will hopefully put them on the launching pad towards success as adults. Now, that's a great idea. And it looks like this picked up a lot of momentum. Is that what got you featured in Forbes and on a lot of the major news networks? Yeah, I think a lot of people are very interested in, in knowing what to do to help kids succeed. I mean, if you're a parent, you know, there aren't too many things that are more important to you than Absolutely. that. And, right. you know, and I think, you know, as you mentioned earlier about depression, this is a big problem. And it's a really big problem for kids, especially teenage girls. Yes. And, you know, ER visits for suicide attempts have gone up 50% recently. And this is probably partly due to the pandemic and social isolation. I'm sure social media plays a big role, which would have occurred pandemic or no pandemic. Right. So I, I would say sort of a combination of factors that existed outside of COVID plus COVID, I think have really pushed a lot of kids over the edge. So I think there's a lot of concern now. What can we do to help these kids out? Yeah. So I like the kind of contrasting your career where as an anesthesiologist, you know, you're meeting the people one day you put them to sleep, you wake them up, they go home, and that's pretty much your relationship from a physician standpoint. But now you're really vested in not only the health and wellness, but also you know dealing with women's sports and just kind of their careers overall. So how is that? How does that feel to have that interaction more so now? Well, I will tell you this because you mentioned the anesthesia thing, and I, it's true that in the sort of a traditional OR setting, our contact with patients is limited. I, right. These days I work mostly in clinics. So mm -hmm. I see the patients before and then I see them afterwards. So I, I do see them before and after, but that's you know typically it for most people. But I will tell you, I've seen this, this is anecdotal, but there's a breathtaking amount of anxiety that I've seen among, because I, I take care of kids mostly among mm -hmm. the teenagers that I've seen. I mean, just unbelievable, well above and beyond what I've ever seen in the past. There are kids that are crying, the teenagers that are crying because they're afraid of their procedure or they're crying after the procedure's done because they were afraid of something that's already happened. I've had a number of teenagers, they would wake up, they were crying, not because of the anesthesia, they're awake now, but they, right. they needed like a, like a, I had someone the other day, she needed some heavy blanket to put on top of her for comfort. She was a 17 year old having a small procedure. The procedure was done already, but she was so anxious that even after it was done, and even at, you know, virtually being an adult, she could barely contain herself without having some sort of physical object to comfort her. So even in my, as you would say, kind of limited patient interactions, it's really quite breathtaking to me that, how much anxiety there is. So the types of things that we're trying to do now, I, I think hopefully we'll address some of those. And you know, to answer your question more specifically, the stuff we're doing now, I'm not directly working with the kids that much on these projects, but I'm really, I see myself, the role I'm playing is really to bring other people together who care about them who are innovative and come up with solutions or maybe who can help fund them 
or to bring governmental entities together to hopefully craft more powerful solutions than I could simply do on my own. Yeah, so you're, you're really building a platform for this so other people can benefit from it, which is beautiful. Right, right, that's the intention, right? Yeah, yeah. All right, so tell us about um, your women's sports forum um, and what does that entail? Well, you, you probably know a lot more about this than I do, but I'll tell you. So I worked in Northern California for many years at a hospital. And, and when I left, when I decided to do other things, I moved back down to LA and I, I went to UCLA for college and med school. And I thought, I'm going to go there. I'm going to try different things. I've been into this anti-aging and wellness stuff. Now is my chance to do it. And when I was down there, I reconnected with a lot of athletes. You know, UCLA mm-hmm. has a lot of athletes. And I, I, that's actually kind of where the sports thing came from. And one thing that was surprising to me, which as a layperson, I had really no idea. I had assumed that athletes really kind of got the best of everything in terms of medical care. Like I had assumed they would get the best nutrition advice, the best sleep advice. They would be really up to date on all of these things because, you know, they're athletes and you, you know, mm-hmm. like you want them to perform as well as possible. And if you're a coach or an owner of a team, they're your investment, if you will, you know, you don't want them getting injured and, but I was surprised. I was surprised because that wasn't the case at all. While I think it is true that many athletes get very good orthopedic care, obviously your specialty, mm-hmm. uh, they, they don't necessarily get good care outside of orthopedics. In other words, if they break a bone, they have great doctors who will help them. But in terms of helping to figure out what foods to eat and when, or how much to sleep and and what sleeping conditions to have, or whether you should use wearables or other devices, most athletes don't have that unless they're sort of into that. Like LeBron James, from what I understand, is into that. So he puts effort into this. But the average athlete, even professional athletes, they're not. And then, so then I thought, well, this is an area worth addressing because there's a need for this. And, and I also felt that, 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 that these folks would be interested. You know, athletes, they want to be as good as they can. Like maybe they just don't know. But then what we found out is that women athletes, much more so than men, really don't get the sort of support and assistance that, that they deserve. And this is both from a nutrition standpoint. We all heard about that, that NCAA weight room fiasco oh, yeah. where, right. where the, the women athletes the were. Mm-hmm. Right where the women athletes have these terrible conditions, you know, for working out. And what we really identified is that women athletes, number one, have tremendous needs that are not being addressed from a physical health standpoint. But mm-hmm. we've all seen with Naomi Osaka and Simone Biles that there's also mental health needs that are not being addressed. So we felt that there was really, that this is something that really deserves more attention. Yeah, so you brought up a lot of great topics. Um... Number one, that there is a great divide, right, between, number one, male sports, women's sports. But I think the myth is, is that all professional athletes are playing on these great, with these great organizations, you know, they're flying in private planes, they're staying in five-star hotels, they're having private chefs and cooks, but that's truly not the truth, right? That might happen in the Major League Baseball, NBA, NFL, but, you know, WNBA, women's sports, especially if you start to get down to some of the smaller sports that don't create a lot of revenue, you know, your, your soccer programs or your swimming programs, you might not be getting the basic necessities. And then the other thing you brought up is that who's taking care of the athletes. So even at major universities, 
a lot of times you have a, as you mentioned, a primary care sports or an orthopedic surgeon that's closely linked to the athletes. But what about a primary care physician? What about a psychiatrist? What about a psychologist? Who's talking to them about depression? You know, who's talking to them about and women's health? We know that they have their whole circle with nutrition and how that ties in with injury, how that ties in with bone health. Who's working with them on, on that in that arena? So there are many different aspects that I think people just assume happen for the athlete, but many times they have to go out on their own if they don't have their own insurance. You know, some schools don't even cover you as an athlete when you're playing for that school, which is, you know, it's terrible because if you get injured on their clock, you still might have to use your own insurance or lack thereof to try to, to uh, seek out medical care. Yeah, that, that's exactly it. And, you know, just to add on to that, if you, if you look at, at the risk of kind of generalizing here, but this is supported by data, if yeah. you look at women athletes, they tend to be kind of more responsible for family issues. So a lot of times if there's an older parent or a sick parent, it, it disproportionately falls upon the daughter. You know, everybody's like, you really, <laughs> we should all pray to have daughters, right? Because they're the ones right. who <laughs> keep you out of the nursing home. Yeah, but, yeah. But, but women disproportionately are the ones who take care of sick or older parents. And if you think about it, say you're a 25 year old woman athlete, or a 30-year-old woman athlete, and you're still performing, you're still playing, but you want to have a family. That's a huge impactful decision for a woman, much more so than it would be for a male athlete. I mean, yes, you know, as a man, having kids has an effect on you, but it really has an effect on you if you're a woman. And so it creates a lot of stress and it, and, and, and it puts people in these very, very difficult positions. Mm -hmm. Do I have the child that I want now? and risk not practicing and, and, and potentially losing my sport? Do I delay it and risk maybe losing my window of having children? There's a lot of these sort of societal, if you will, and family pressures that women face that typically men don't need to to the same degree. Yeah, you know, I, it's funny you brought that up. I saw a post pop up about Allison Felix, you know, the track star, um, had a baby or got pregnant. And while she was training, trying to sneak around to train because she didn't want her sponsors to know that she was pregnant and then ended up, you know, getting a lot of pressure and pushback from Nike. And once she had her baby, you know, had some complications even, but made it back to train to make the Olympics and medal again. And, you know, I think the role was the line was know your place. And that was kind of her model for her new brand that she came out on her own, which was excellent. And, you know, she was able to run in her own shoe in her last Olympic. And, you know, she completed, competed for the last time at, in the world championships recently and got another medal. So it was great to see that, but it's shameful that she was under the pressure from sponsors as a grown woman, grown married woman, having a baby that she was still, her career or her sponsorship was in jeopardy just to have a baby. The Sabre training bat is like no other training bat you've ever used before. So the purpose of the Sabre training bat with its modified barrel is so that you can perfectly sequence and get behind the ball, getting the bat on plane sooner, creating less miss hits, more line drives, higher batting averages, and more exit velocity. The Sabre training bat is the number one training bat on the market. Saber bats.
the training bat that's gonna take you to your best swing. Yeah, you're exactly right about that. And, you know, I'm actually, I'm happy you brought that up because th there is something about that that does offer a glimmer of hope, which is, I, I think that that episode actually resonated with a lot of people. And I think a lot of people were like, holy smokes, you know, yeah. how could we be doing this to these athletes? But, you know, I'm sure you're familiar. One of the big things now is this name, image, and likeness rule mm -hmm. where, where college athletes can get sponsorship deals and, and they could make newer novel financial arrangements that they couldn't make before. And one of the things that seems to be the case is that certainly relative to their sports popularity, women athletes actually tend to be more popular than male athletes yeah, on social media. Yeah. And, you know, we, if, if you take a look at someone like Tom Brady, for example, like we might all admire Tom Brady and we might be in awe of his accomplishments, but, but how many of us relate to Tom Brady? Right. Probably nobody, right? Like you just, he's not a relatable figure, you know, like you might be curious what he's doing, but you don't relate to him. But someone like Simone Biles, for example, or, or to a lot of these women athletes that are willing to open up mm -hmm. and have put themselves out there and have shared like their struggles and what they've gone through they're much more relatable to people. And so in a sense, that's who you'd want to follow on social media because their struggles in a way are our struggles. They're right. just, they have a bigger platform. But, and so I, I think that, at least I hope, maybe I'm overly optimistic, but I think things like social media and name image and likeness will eventually come around to helping women athletes because they're just so much more interesting on average than most of the male athletes are. Sure. And as you mentioned, I think... They've been a lot more forthcoming. You know, we've seen Serena Williams with her struggles, you know, trying to come back from childbirth and, you know, Naomi Osaka and talking about her mental health uh, struggles. And, you know, people, I think the more that athletes open up or more they feel comfortable to open up and express what they're actually going through, you, like you mentioned, they seem more human. And that's one thing I like to highlight on my podcast, even me and you as a, a physician, there are many people who will be interested in doing the same thing that we do, but will never approach us because somewhere along the way, they were told that, you know, you don't talk to your doctor or whatever your doctor tells you, you just do it. You know, the, the mentality of you're the doctor, you tell me what to do um, instead of creating a relationship and having a back and forth conversation. So I think we have to try to break some of the societal norms about famous people or successful people and are they approachable or not? Right. No, I, I completely agree. And I, I think women athletes in many ways have really kind of led the way in this regard. And, and I, 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 this is me going out on a limb now, but I, I do think from a marketing standpoint, that will certainly help them now because now a lot of brands might want to attach themselves to this relatable figure that so many of us, in a sense, are kind of welcoming into our home. Yeah. Uh, and, and, I, and I would think that I would probably trust, say, Naomi Osaka or Simone Biles advice about a product more than Tom Brady's, mm -hmm. even though obviously Tom Brady's, you know, made a fortune in the sport. Yeah, understood. All right. So talk to us about it. I mentioned that you're an author. Talk to us about your book, uh, Why Doctors Skip Breakfast. So one of the big things that I've, I've been into in the last, I've always loved nutrition. You know, it's funny, my parents like telling the story. I think I was probably nine or something at the time when I was having a birthday party. 
and I wouldn't eat the birthday cake <laughs> <laughs> because it was too unhealthy. Yeah, and, you know, like they, they love <laughs> making fun of me for this. They haven't let me forget it. But yeah, I guess I've always been into nutrition, but I remember a friend of mine, he's, he's a, also a physician, he's a radiation oncologist. He told me some years ago, he said, you know, there's this anti-aging medicine. And I was like, no. And I was like, he's like, no, seriously, like there's this whole branch of medicine, now, like anti-aging, there's all this research and everything else. I'm like, I, I don't think so. I thought he was joking. I've known this guy forever. Mm -hmm. but he's like, no, look it up. Like go to the New England Journal of Medicine or any other prestigious medical journal. There's thousands of articles about anti-aging. So I looked it up and sure enough, he was right. And I was just blown away by this. Like the idea that, that we have some control over the rate at which we age or potentially could either slow it down or maybe even to some degree reverse it was really revolutionary to me. You know, I think a lot of us look at aging kind of the way, if, if I could use this analogy, if, if say you have a wooden table and you take mm -hmm. your wooden table and you put it out in the patio, what will happen to that table over time? Well, it'll, it'll decay and fall apart, right? Like the sun hits it and, and the rain goes on it, wind, you know, the termites might find it. The table just decays. It's, there's nothing the table could do. But, but it turns out that, and so I think a lot of people look at aging that way, like that we are the wooden table out on the patio. But, but now I think there's this growing sense that we have much more control over the rate and, and the way in which we age than, than we used to think. And it's kind of an exciting field of medicine, I think now. And so that book, Why Doctors Skip Breakfast, it was really sort of sharing some of the, the latest kind of anti-aging approaches. And, you know, when you say anti-aging, I'll speak for myself. One of the first things you think about is skin care or, you know, keeping your skin tight or looking muscular. But this is what we're talking about is on the inside from a more molecular level and cellular level. How do you slow down some of the processes of aging, correct? Well, you know, it's funny. I actually just talked about this the other day at a, at a conference. If you ask people what is aging to you or what is old, you know, there's different ways that, that you might mentally define that. You might define it, as you said, as looking old, you know, being wrinkled and having a lot of gray hair. You might define it as being old chronologically, just whatever your year is, if you're 80 or old. You might define it by chronic illness. You know, we tend to think of older people as having chronic disease, like heart disease or cancer. Or another way you may define it is by disability which is somewhat separate from disease. In other words, right. uh, you walk very, you deal with this a lot, obviously in orthopedics, you yeah. walk very slowly. You're not able to take care of yourself at home. Uh, those types of things you, 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 you need to, you're dependent on someone else for your care. Uh, people would think of as a form of being old. So, but it turns out that there are certain techniques that can potentially help most or all of those obviously can't turn the actual clock back but the rest of those there are techniques you could do that actually can can help ward off all of those things that we would sort of standardly define as aging so just give us you know a, a brief summary of some of the treatments or some of the things that you recommend uh, for anti-aging for the normal individual a healthy individual so so i'll tell you there's the relatively evidence-based stuff which I tend to talk about the most just because I prefer to talk about stuff that you could prove. But there's also the not really evidence-based stuff, but, but may end up being a bigger deal in the future, but we just don't mm -hmm. know enough to say this for sure. 
So the evidence-based stuff, I would say number one is, is getting enough sleep. It, it's clear that when you don't get enough sleep, you're more likely to get chronic disease, heart disease, high blood pressure. You're more likely to get cancer. You're more likely to get Alzheimer's disease. That will also cause you to have chronic disability and you look worse and your performance is worse. So sleep, I would say is number one. In terms of eating habits, it's clear that sugar is bad. Everybody debates diet, right? So I think there are some non-controversial dietary things that are anti-aging. Sugar is aging. Trans fats are aging. So the more sugar, the more trans fats we eat, the worse. Vegetables, particularly things like green leafy vegetables and berries are most likely anti-aging. They reduce disease burden and they have a lot of the beneficial effects. So if you could say decrease your sugar and trans fats, thank God we don't have too many trans fats anymore. Increase yeah. olive oil, vegetables, herbs, and spices, berries, and fiber. So that's a nutritionally way of reducing aging. Yeah. I think there's pretty good evidence, although this is debatable, that fasting has an anti-aging effect. I think time will tell whether this is true. There's just some interesting studies, but that, that's one of the big sort of, I think, relatively evidence-based ones. Sure, sure. And not overeating. So, yeah, you know, as I was kind of looking through your profile before we started the interview, I was like, oh boy, we got to talk about sleep and nutrition. So people that know me know that I don't sleep a lot and that um, I'm very picky as far as when it comes to some of the things that you mentioned, but it's definitely a, an area in my life that I'm more conscious of now. And my wife and I, we talk about it a lot that I know I need to do better. So just give us some recommendations on sleep. How many hours of sleep from what you're seeing is recommended? Well, you know, it's funny because uh, it turns out also that sleep deprivation leads to poor eating. And you probably experience this yourself. If you're on call yeah. and it's three in the morning and you're hungry, yeah. you're not going to have a plate of broccoli at that point. Right? <laughs> that, that's, not, that's not what you're looking for at that moment. That's not what you're going to eat. So if you're eating at that time, you're sleep deprived you're gonna eat garbage. So, mm -hmm. and, and there's actually, this is, it's not just convenience, it actually, you, there's a certain craving for those types of foods in your sleep deprived. So they're actually related, your sleep and, and diet actually interface with each other. It's also true that if you eat a lot of food before you sleep, that that impairs the quality of your sleep. So, so sort of bi-directionally, sleep and, and diet impact each other. But in terms of how much sleep you should get, it really, it's, it, you really, adults really need at least seven to eight hours and really probably at least eight hours of sleep per night. And a lot of people will say, oh yeah, I only need like five or six or something like that. A lot of surgeons say this, um, but, but, but this has been looked into and, and really less than 1% of the population, I mean, probably quite a bit less than 1% of the population needs less than seven hours of sleep. So if you think you only need five hours of sleep, for example, you're almost certainly wrong. Yeah, I think what I'm guilty of saying that statement, and I think, well, I'll just tell you what I mean by it is that in order to be alert and function, not to say that it's healthy, but I think your body gets used to being deprived, and you know, in a sense, not that it's a healthy thing, you just that's your baseline of deprivation. Then that may be true, uh, it, it may be that you can find some ways of accommodating it from an alertness standpoint, although I think the jury is out on that, but, yeah. it, but it's still increasing your risk of cancer, heart disease, Alzheimer's, and everything else, even if you're alert the next day. 
Yeah. Now, when you mentioned that, that definitely piqued my interest. So the you said there's a connection between sleep and Alzheimer's? Yeah, it seems to be. You know, it's again, like all. So unfortunately, as, as you know, just about every nutrition study is garbage, right? So I, I run around and I spend all day talking about nutrition studies, <laughs> and most of them are trash, right? Because yeah. you can't really do like a long-term randomized controlled trial of like broccoli you know who's gonna mm -hmm. you know you can't randomize some people to eating broccoli and follow them for 40 years and watch what happens you just can't do that so you have to use surrogate endpoints or you have to look at observational studies so obviously the same thing is true for sleep but we've seen that that people that tend to get less sleep or people that work nights which is a sort of a surrogate for sleep tend to have more cns disorders, including Alzheimer's disease. And interestingly, and I don't know how this was approved, but there was a study, they looked at people, I think it was like just one or two days of sleep deprivation, and they did a spinal tap on them. And their, their CSF, the fluid that goes around the brain for people that don't know that, it's sort of to some degree a marker for the chemistry that's going on in your brain, became abnormal from just, I can't remember the details, but just some like one or two nights of poor sleep. And so, there's very good circumstantial data that, that sleep deprivation has very harmful effects on the brain beyond the obvious stuff like attention and mood and car accidents and, and everything else. Yeah, no, that's impressive. Um, so on Time Out with the Sports Doctor, this is your final time out. So we've discussed a lot of important topics from nutrition to sleep to, you know, depression and mental health. Um, but and that might be a little overwhelming for somebody that's listening that might be struggling in all of those categories. So as we talk to patients, you know, sometimes we have to just get down to where do we start? So how do you advise someone who might be struggling um, to find, you know, they know that they're unhealthy and they know that they have a long way to go, but how do you advise somebody how to get started on more of a healthy lifestyle and healthy living? I think and this is one of the problems why doctors often don't bother with this, because all of these things take a little bit of time. And as, as you know, uh, you usually don't have a lot of time to just chit chat with people about things. Right. But what I would say is that the best approach, if this is you or if you're counseling someone, you know, is there's something called motivational interviewing. But the idea is you want to kind of figure out what people have some internal motivation to change. And what I mean by that is. In your example, maybe there's someone they smoke, they don't drink enough, they don't sleep enough, they have a poor diet. What you could do is you could say, well, how, how big of a problem do you feel your smoking is for you? How big of a problem do you feel your lack of sleep is for you? Do you yeah. think sleeping more would help you? How big of a problem do you think your diet is? And if they say to you, well, you know, I smoke, but I can quit anytime. I'm happy to do it. I don't think it's a big deal. But they say, but I really wish that I could improve my diet for someone like that. I would say, okay, well, I would, even though the smoking is a huge issue, I would maybe shelve that for the moment and focus on the diet because they've given you an opening. There. Like they, they've said to you that they really think it's a problem and they want to improve. So I would work, you know, swim with the stream in this case and, 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 and try to focus on say diet in that person's example, because they've shown some internal willingness. The smoking, you're probably gonna be banging your head against the wall for quite a while. And unless you could spend time in that, you're probably just gonna frustrate yourself and that person. Yeah, now that was really good. As you were talking, I just kind of thought about walk through that open door, whatever open door they give you, walk through that door instead of just beating, continue to beat on the door. Because many times 
you know, I always have this uncomfortable, I'm talking about arthritis and I go through different treatments for arthritis. We talk about anti-inflammatory medicine. We talk about physical therapy. I know I have to talk to him about weight management, but is that door going to be open or closed? Many times it'll be open and they'll say, you know what? I've been working on that. I'm trying. I've been doing, trying to eat better. I've been trying to walk. I've been trying, but many times you already know that door is completely closed, but I know I still have to mention it. <laughs> and, you know, you get the eye roll or you, even worse than that, you get the tears flowing and now, oh boy, now what do I do? So but yeah, thank you for uh, definitely giving that. Just go with whatever you think will be they're more receptive to and that's how you're going to make a change an immediate change and then slowly start to introduce the other subjects. Right, and you know, the thing is they'll feel better. If, if, if you're yeah. able to get some traction, whether it's diet or sleep or exercise or smoking or anything, they'll feel better from that. And then yeah. you'll have more success with those other things. No, very good. Very good. Well, hey, thank you for sharing with us today. And just tell the audience how they can find you on social media, how they can follow all the great work that you're doing. Best on LinkedIn, if you're into that, Gregory Charlope, yeah. C-H-A-R-L-O-P, like Peter. Uh, I am on Facebook and Instagram. You could look for me there, but I'm much better on LinkedIn. And if you're interested in the book, Why Doctors Skip Breakfast, uh, you can get that on Amazon or on Audible if you're an audiobook person. Perfect, perfect. And we'll include all this information in the show notes. So very, hey, once again, thank you for coming on. Thank you for sharing with us. And I really appreciate the work that you're doing for women and for young girls in sports. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me on. It's, it's fun speaking to another doctor who cares about this stuff. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thank you for continuing to support this podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, then please leave a five-star review. And if you haven't done so, subscribe so you continue to get the updated episode. Until later, peace. Hey, time out with the sports doc. Keep our head right in the game. We ain't never stopping. You are now tuned in. Trust, you don't want to miss. This is where life, sports, and medicine.